Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me into the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, and we're going to read the entire chapter. <coughs> when you have Zechariah 3, you may stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Hear the Word of the Lord. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head, and they put clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among these who stand here. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. And in that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. This ends the reading of God's Word, the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is your Word and we are your people. And we ask, Father, that you would take these precious promises of the good news, let them be revealed to us in the the coming minutes, that we study your Word together. And we ask, God, that you would open up our hearts and minds to hear hear this good news with joy. And let it cleanse us from all sin and let us walk in the newness of life. We ask it all in your Son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we talked about God's plan for a Jerusalem without or, or for a Jerusalem without man-made walls and, and what God's prime what God promises the people is that He's going to serve as a wall of fire around them. And we saw that last week in Zechariah 2. And He's going to be their glory. And we talked about how um, we can claim that promise because in Christ we are a part of the new Jerusalem. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, is that all things belong to us, and we belong to Jesus, and Jesus belongs to God the Father. And if we pair that with Zechariah 2.5 that we saw last week, then we also get that picture of God being the wall of fire around us. And so we've got this picture of God surrounding us on all sides. 
that we are in Christ, we, God in Christ is in God, and God is all around us. And of course, that's good news. We're not alone. We're not abandoned. We're not left to our own devices. We have all of the resources we need in the place that God has provided for us, and there's no reason for us to follow the prodigal into the far country, as it were. But now we have this vision of Joshua, the high priest. And if you pair this vision with last week's vision, then the message becomes clearer. And then we're going to see next week in Zechariah 4 how all of these visions work together to, to build one sequential story, one sequential message. But now we have this vision of Joshua, the high priest. And, if you, and, and last week the good news was that the exile can come home. This week, the good news is that the dirty can be made clean. And as we look at Zechariah 3, there's one other thing that I think bears mentioning. I've mentioned up to this point that, that there is an angel that's been showing Zechariah all these different visions and interpreting the visions for him. Uh, we don't see that angel in this chapter. We don't see that angel in this particular vision. That angel is not going to show up again until next week in Zechariah chapter 4. And so Zechariah, it, he sees this vision because, it's, because in you know, verse 3 it says, Then he showed me, he's referring to the interpreting angel. He's not there, but he's showing Joshua this vision of the high priest. He doesn't explain anything to him. He doesn't explain anything to him. The, the only explanation that Zechariah gets is, is from this other angel that's referred to as the angel of the Lord. And we saw a few weeks ago how we can view the angel of the Lord as a, as a Christophany, as a pre-incarnate Christ. And so, and, so jo, and so Zechariah's explanation of this vision about Joshua comes from the angel of the Lord. And he doesn't get much of an explanation. He just sees what's going on, and then he hears that promise toward the end. And so we're going to look at all this, and, and we're going to see what it means, and we're going to see what it means for us. And so what we're going to see is three points here. We're going to see the indictment against Joshua. We're going to see the iniquity removed from Joshua. And then we're going to see the integrity that Joshua is commanded to walk in. So let's look at verses 1 and verse 3 here to see the indictment against Joshua. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Look down at, and now skip down to verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. So we're introduced to three main players in this vision right off the bat. We're introduced to Joshua, who is the high priest, and, and he is dressed in filthy garments. We're introduced to the angel of the Lord, who is a Christophany, and then we are introduced to Satan, who is the accuser. And Revelation 12, chapter 10, actually refers to Satan as the accuser of the brethren. So it's, it's no surprise that when we see him here in this vision, he's doing what he does. He's accusing. And so to set the scene, let me put it in these terms. We're in a courtroom. We're in a courtroom where the angel of the Lord is presiding as judge. Satan is the accuser. Joshua is the defendant. And then there are other people there who are not identified directly by the text, but, but we know from the text that they are Joshua's conspiracy. Uh, uh, constituents. That's the word I'm looking for. They are Joshua's constituents. 
And so if Joshua is the high priest, who are his constituents? Well, his constituents are the priests who work underneath him in the temple. And so Joshua is in this courtroom, in this vision, that is. This isn't a literal thing that happened. This is just, this is just a vision that, Je that Zechariah saw. So in this vision, Zechariah is standing in this courtroom with all of the people that he works with in the temple surrounding him. The angel of the Lord is presiding as judge, and Satan is accusing him. And he's wearing filthy garments. So the high priest, the representative of God to the people, is standing there with defiled garments, and this was probably offensive to Zechariah when he saw it. He might have thought to himself, Joshua, what are you doing? Why do you look like this? The, and, and the fact is that this vision should shock us as well. We should be caught off guard by the fact that someone in Joshua's position is seen in such a predicament. In, in you know, for just kind of illustrate this a little bit, in 1998, when it first came out that uh, Bill Clinton had committed adultery with Monica Lewinsky, there was shock and awe all across the country that someone who held the highest office in the land would do such a despicable thing. Now, to be fair, for, for those of us who know about Bill Clinton, it wasn't that much of a shock, but that point aside, <laughs> it, was, it was a shock that someone who held the highest office in the land would do that. That kind of incredulous feeling is the same feeling that we should have when we see Joshua standing here with filthy garments. And, and what drives the point even home more is that the Hebrew word that's used in verse 3 to describe how filthy his garments are is actually used in other places in the Old Testament to describe human excrement. It's filthy. It's disgusting. And we should be embarrassed for him. We should feel some sort of shame that he holds such a high office and is found to be in such a condition. But before we start feeling too good about ourselves up on our moral high horse that we wouldn't do anything like that, we need to remember that this vision isn't actually about Joshua. Zechariah sees Joshua as the high priest in the vision, but the vision isn't about Joshua personally. Joshua is only a symbol, and you see this all throughout the Bible when, when prophets have visions. They see something, but it means something else. Like, for example, we see this later in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, uh, whenever, whenever John hears the word 144,000. Like, there's been debate about who the 144,000 are and what that means. And, and what it all comes down to is that, is that whenever John sees the multitude of people, he, the text says that the voice told him that there was 144,000 there, but what he saw was a multitude that could not be numbered. He saw a multitude that could not be numbered, but he heard 144,000. And so it was a symbol. The, just, like, just like in the book of Revelation, the number 144,000 is a symbol. Joshua is a symbol. Joshua is only, is only a symbol. If, so if Joshua in this vision is only a symbol, what does he represent? What is, if we're solving for X, and, and as much as I hate algebra, I think this is a good illustration. If we're solving for X, what's X? Well, like any high priest, he represents the people. 
It's the job of any priest, especially the high priest, to represent the people before God and in turn represent God before the people. So as Joshua the high priest stands before the angel of the Lord, he stands before a pre-incarnate Christ, he stands before him filthy. What does that mean? It means that that's a, that's a symbol for how the people look before God. The people look filthy before God. The high priest is supposed to be clean and holy, and Israel themselves are supposed to be clean and holy. In Leviticus 11.44, uh, yeah, Leviticus 11.44, God says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And then we see the devil himself. We see Satan standing there accusing Joshua before the angel of the Lord. And look at Joshua. He's standing there in filthy clothing. It's not like Satan's accusations are false. I mean, how could he not be guilty? You know, we, we refer to Satan as the father of all lies, but in this case, in this court, Satan might not even have to lie about Joshua. What we're supposed to see here is a picture of how Satan accuses God's people right in front of him both day and night. And and he doesn't even have to lie about Joshua. And, and the truth is, he probably doesn't even have to lie about us either. We're guilty. We're just as dirty, we're just as filthy, and we're just as sinful as Satan says we are. We're just as unworthy as Satan says we are. But you see, when Satan reminds you that you're a sinner, that's true, but that's only half the truth. The whole truth is that you're a sinner... And Jesus died for sinners. Martin Luther, the reformer, he, he said that Satan would come to him and accuse him of his sin and accuse him that he's a sinner. And, and this is what Luther wrote. He said, Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by setting forth the greatness of my sins and try to bring me into heaviness, distrust, despair, hatred, contempt, and blasphemy against God. On the contrary, when you say that I am a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself, so that with your own sword I may cut your throat and tread you under my feet. For Christ died for sinners. As often as you object that I am a sinner, so often you remind me of the benefit of Christ my Redeemer, on whose shoulders and not on mine lie all my sins. So when you say I am a sinner, you do not terrify me, but you comfort me immeasurably. And so when Paul was writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, he said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And so the, the way you gain comfort from the gospel is by admitting that you're not as good as you think you are. The, I'll say that again. The way you gain comfort from the gospel is by admitting that you're not as good as you think you are. You admit that you're actually quite a failure in terms of living up to God's perfect standard. And when you do that, you'll be reminded that Jesus' death and resurrection is for you. People who think they have it all together don't see a need for salvation. So, so, so nothing that this book right here, nothing that this book says is going to do them any good. It's all foolishness to them. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Well, what's that mean? It means that those of us who will admit that we're filthy and see a need for salvation, we receive power for salvation, and those who don't see a need for it are walking headlong into their own destruction. And so we see the iniquity removed from Joshua right after that. Look at verses 3 
and 4. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And then he answered and spoke to those who stood for him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with riches. Notice the first part of the sentence in verse 4. He says, See, I have removed your iniquity from you. I want you to notice this because we live in a world that doesn't really know what to do with guilt. I mean, because think about it. Joshua was guilty. Joshua was wearing filthy garments. Satan accuses Joshua in court. The evidence is there. Joshua is guilty. And we live in a culture that doesn't know what to do with our own guilt. Now, God knows what to do with our guilt because God solves the problem for Joshua. God solves the problem for Joshua by, by, by demanding that his filthy clothes are taken off of him and that clean clothes are put on him. But we live in a world that doesn't know what to do with guilt. They, they want, so what they do is they want to make the feeling of guilt go away without actually removing the source of guilt. Most people who aren't Christians don't really have a real standard of morality. So when, when they feel guilty, the best they can do is go to therapy for it and hope that it goes away on its own. There's no concept of confession and absolution. There's no concept of repentance. You know, there's no concept of, of forgiveness of sin. Just go live any way you want to, and if you feel bad for something, just say you're sorry and move on. And, and if you can't move on, then medicate yourself. That's pretty much how the world handles it. So there's this, there's this ridiculous story that I think illustrates this idea well. A man goes into a restaurant and he orders a, he orders a Coke, and as soon as he receives it, he throws it in the waiter's face. And the waiter is, is mad, and he's ready to fight. And, and the man says, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have a horrible compulsion. I, I can't help it. Anytime I get something in my hand, my nerves just kick in, and I throw it. And, um, and he says, I feel so guilty. Please forgive me. And, and the waiter says, look, I'm, you know, I'm working hard. The waiter says, look, I'll bring you another, another drink, and you know, just don't do it again. So he brings him another Coke, and as soon as the guy grabs it, he throws it in the waiter's face again. And the waiter gets mad, kicks him out of the restaurant, and the waiter says, don't, don't come back until you're not doing that anymore. And so about three months later, the same guy walks in, and he asks the waiter for a Coke, and the waiter recognizes him. And he says, I know you. You're that guy who kept throwing sodas in my face. And the guy said, well, I, you know, I, I went to therapy. I'm cured just, you know, just bring me another soda. It won't happen again. So the waiter brings him another soda, and sure enough, the guy tosses it in the waiter's face. And the waiter says, I thought you were cured. And the guy says, I am cured. I don't feel guilty about it anymore. <laughs> right? So that, that's the way the world handles guilt. They want to get rid of the feeling of guiltiness without actually removing the source of guilt. And so our culture doesn't want to feel guilty, but they want to, and they don't want to address the thing that makes them guilty, which is sin. And see, the reality of the situation is that God stands ready to forgive and ready to remove our sin, but we're not ready to be removed from our sin. We're not, we're not willing to give it up. We want to keep the fun parts of our sin intact while getting rid of the negative consequences and negative emotions that come afterward. The, the Puritan preacher Thomas Watson, he was on to something when he said that the pleasure of sin is soon gone, but the sting remains. Our problem is that we want all of the pleasure without any of the sting. So let me ask you something. If you, if you got wasps nests around your house and they swarm you every time you walk outside, what are you going to do? You're going to go to the store, you're going to pick up a couple cans of raid, and you're going to go to war. 
You're not going to sit there and try to catch the wasp and be as gentle as you can and remove their stinger and then send it off into the wild. You know what would happen if you did that? You'd get sting more times than if you just went after them with a can of raid. And see, that's what we want to do with our sin. Instead of taking our sin to Jesus and trusting that His work on the cross kills our sin, we think, well, I can manage this on my own to, to where it doesn't sneak up on me as much. I can just talk this out with my therapist. I can just medicate this. No, you need to repent of your sin and kill it. John Owen, another Puritan preacher, he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And looking back at Zechariah 3, 4, God says, See, I have removed your iniquity. God does something far greater for Joshua than just making him feel better. God does something far greater for Joshua than just removing his feeling of guilt. He has actually removed the source of guilt. Now think about this for just a minute. I said that this was a courtroom scene earlier. <coughs> so imagine that, that something like this happens down at the Pope County Courthouse. But instead of a high priest wearing filthy clothes, we've got a murderer on our hands. We've got a murderer in the courthouse, and the evidence is there, right? The, the evidence is there. He killed this person. The murderer ki clearly killed this person. The evidence is there, and the, the, and the jury even, even declares him to be guilty. Well, the judge has no power whatsoever to remove his sin. He's a human judge. He can't remove the guy's sin. He can just give him a sentence and move on, call it a day, move on to the next case. But we have a judge who sits on his throne in heaven who is far superior to a human judge, and he can actually remove our sin from us. And so God removes Joshua's iniquity. And that's the kind of healing that's offered in the atoning work of Christ. Jesus didn't die to tell you how pretty you are and give you a self-esteem boost. He died because we're all filthy before God, and the only way to be clean is to be washed in His blood. You and I need something far greater than just to, to feel better. We actually need to be made better. And Jesus can do that. And what happens is that when you trust Christ's work on your behalf through faith and repentance, then no accusation will be able to stand against you. According to Romans chapter 8, verses 33 through 37, the Apostle Paul says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Well, who's going to do it? Nobody. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, yet... In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, you may hear the voice of condemnation. You may even feel as though you are condemned under the weight of your sin. But as Ben Shapiro likes to say, facts don't care about your feelings. And the fact is that if there is genuine faith and repentance, then how you are made to feel by the enemy is irrelevant. The enemy is unable to bring a legitimate charge against you in the court of heaven because the blood of Christ stands at your defense. 
You may feel crushed, but the fact remains that you are victorious. You may feel abandoned, but the fact remains that Christ has not left you or forsaken you. You may feel hopeless, but the fact is that the resurrection of Christ guarantees that our hope is secure. In all these things we are more than conquerors. Well, what are these things that he mentions? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Those are all of the things that could possibly go wrong in your life. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, the message is the same. Sin doesn't have the final word. God's forgiveness does. And it's that forgiveness that makes it possible to live as God calls us to live and do as God calls us to do. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and if you will keep my commandments, then you shall also judge my house and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. Now notice that after Joshua has clean clothes put back on him, he's commanded to walk in God's ways and keep God's commandments. He's put right back to work judging over God's house and God's court. God is telling Israel that if they will take the opportunity to repent and be cleansed of their sin, God will make a way for them to continue serving him like before. Their cleansing from sin is meant to propel them into the future that God has for them. And of course, the same, the same is true for us. We're not done in our walk with God once we're saved. We're not done in our walk with God once we repent. God has a purpose for us to live out, and that purpose can only be accomplished with a life that has experienced forgiveness of sin. Now, if we look at verses 8 and 9, we'll see two symbolic pictures, a branch and a stone with seven eyes. Look at, look at those verses. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you. Now remember, his companions are the priests who work with him in the temple. You and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. And for behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes, and behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Now, if you know Old Testament prophecy very well, then the branch isn't hard to figure out. It's Jesus. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, you'll see this description of the Messiah. The prophet says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Well, who's that? That's Jesus. And of course, this imagery of who this is becomes even clearer when we see a similar prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. The prophet says again, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to, I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell in safety. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. So the branch is clearly Jesus who is coming to be revealed as their Messiah. He's going to be their ultimate deliverer. But if you go back to Zechariah chapter 3, we have this picture not only of a branch but of a stone with seven eyes. And I think if we're being honest, this seems like weird stuff. I think, I think I mentioned a week or two ago that this is book of Revelation levels of symbolism. 
So what's the significance of this? Some, some commentators say that it's another picture for Christ, similar to how the branch was a picture of Christ. Some commentators say that the stone with seven eyes is a symbol for the temple and that it's meant, that's meant to be built. And the seven eyes are meant to convey how God's people will be able to interpret the world and see it for what it is as God's creation through the metaphorical lens of the temple. Another commentator said that the Hebrew word here can also mean, the Hebrew word for eyes can also mean fountains, depending upon the context. So it's possible that eyes is a mistranslation, and what's being said is that uh, seven fountains will come from this stone. And of course, this wouldn't be terribly surprising, because we've seen in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, how God caused water to come from a stone. So what's it all mean? I think of that, I think of that scene in, in Austin Powers, where uh, his his British Austin Powers is supposed to be like this intelligence agent, and his the guy who's in charge of him, Basil, he he explains that all this bad stuff is going on, and only Austin Powers can save the world. And Austin says, "What does it all mean, Basil?" And so whenever you see weird stuff like this in the Old Testament, it almost makes you go, "Well, what does it all mean?" Well, it all means the same thing. It all means that Christ is coming to be a deliverer, to be to be the chief cornerstone. If you want to connect the stone with seven eyes to Christ, then, then he's the chief cornerstone that the builders rejected. And then the seven eyes are the perfect sovereignty of Christ over the building of the temple. Because that's, that's what Haggai and Zechariah have been about. We looked at Haggai, and then now we're looking at Zechariah, and they're both about the same thing. They're both about getting the people to get back to the building project of the temple. The, the temple needs to be built. Because that's going to be a sign of God's presence among the people. Well, no matter how you interpret the, vision, the, the part of the stone with seven eyes, no matter how you interpret any of this, it all leads to the removal of the people's iniquity. Because you see, you see that at the end of verse 9. He, he, you see that at the end of verse 9. He says, I'm going to remove the people's iniquity in one day. And then you have this final picture. You have this final picture of tranquility in verse 10. He says, in that day. Well, in what day? In the day that the people's iniquity is removed, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. So as I read and I think about this passage, the ultimate question that comes to my mind is how do we get to this place of prosperity in verse 10? This is the ultimate picture of communal tranquility that's intended for a people to live under the rule and reign of the Messiah. So how do we get there? Well, what's it all mean? The vine and the fig tree are symbols of prosperity for the people. The, the, their wine comes from vines, figs are their food. And so this is meant to be a picture of the people of God inviting others to partake of their resources. Well, what's the most valuable resource that we have? It's the gospel. That's the most valuable resource that the church has. It's the gospel. Where do we find life? We find it in the good news of the gospel. We find our life in our walk with Christ, and the best way to enjoy that life more is to invite other people into it. If you will, if you will invite people to find life in Christ, like you have found life in Christ, then you'll begin to create a community of people around you who have the same values that you do, and you create fellowship. We're meant to live in fellowship now, but as long as there are people who don't know Christ and don't get life from Him, then there's fellowship that we're missing out on. 
I mean, think about your friends and family members who don't know Christ. Your relationships with them would have so much more meaning if they came to know Christ through faith and repentance. So do you want to get to this place that Zechariah 3.10 talks about where you're freely sharing your resources with people, you're, you're, you're in there freely sharing their resources with you, and, and every man will invite his neighbor under his fig tree? You want to get to that place, then start by sharing the most valuable resource you have, the gospel. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is your word and we are your people. And as we track through the book of Zechariah, I ask, Father, that you would make it plain for us. I ask, Father, that you would make the application of these visions plain for us so that we would understand that these things are for us just as much as it was for your people then. Let us be a people who do not fear to share the most valuable resource we have in the good news of your Son. I ask all of these things and I commit them to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.